My name is Andrew, and today I'd like to offer a few words in appreciation of Keith Jarrett. Keith Jarrett is arguably one of the greatest musicians to have ever lived. His career spans many decades, many high-selling albums, many high-profile concerts, and many forms of music. Personally, I have either owned or heard over 50 Keith Jarrett albums in my time, and a lot of those I have had on repeat for months on end, and still they get me, still they bring out that beauty, that magic, that awe that is so hard to put into words. You may be aware of the French poet Victor Hugo, one of the most well-known French poets, writers, is responsible for Les Mis and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he has a famous quote which sums up quite nicely this game of putting words to music. Music expresses that which cannot be put into words, and that which cannot remain silent, he says. And I think there's an extension to that insight, which is that trying to talk about music and the inspiration, the magic of music, is against the rules because it sort of degrades it. There's something very collapsing about words. Words are not quite as mystical as music itself, which is why we have music. A little later on, I'll also be talking about the philosophy of Keith Jarrett and his approach to music making. But right now, I'd like to talk a little bit more about my own personal experiences. The first time I heard Keith Jarrett and his music was the album Whisper Not, which is the Keith Jarrett trio. And the first track on that album is called What Is This Thing Called Love? And when I put that on, I could not get my head around how it was humanly possible for someone to even play the piano in that way. It sounded like he had seven different arms all going at once. And the other thing that struck me was that it wasn't a display of technical prowess. He wasn't showing off. It had a dramatic effect to it. And there was a story to it. There was a climax. There was a tension. There was a release. And there was a resolution at the end. And that song is an incredible journey through that story. And yet somehow he pulls it off with such elegance, such beauty. And it's all in the tradition of jazz, that old jazz song that has been played so many times before. His jazz recordings always strike me as alive and fresh. They're always new, and they always mean so much to the trio, the Keith Jarrett trio. It's very easy to be burdened by tradition. It's very easy to be bland and to step into cheesy quotes and historical references and cultural references in the jazz idiom. But here, the Keith Jarrett trio really owns it, and they make it their own medium through which their souls are expressed. There are references and there are historical contexts, but it always seems alive, it always seems magical. And there's always something new to hear. There's always another depth to it. Another thing that really strikes me about Keith Jarrett is his sense of tone. And this is hard to put into words because you can't write how music sounds on the page. 
You can't put it into music that is written on the paper. He can be playing sometimes very simple melodies. He's got a strong influence from Ahmad Jamal, who is a jazz pianist who predates him, and Jarrett has often referenced him as an influence. But there's something so tender and so powerful about the touch that Jarrett has on the piano. At times it is forceful and round. Sometimes it's tender and light. And yet he just makes it sing. Somehow that piano becomes a whole choir when he's letting those sounds emanate out from it. There are many albums that I can talk about which have had an incredible effect on me. Most notably is the Vienna Concert. And if you want to have a little bit of practice with your crying, then I suggest you listen to the Vienna Concert. And Jarrett himself has said that that was one of the one album, one of those pinnacle albums, those pinnacle moments in music, which are really the crown jewel on his career. But that album was at a time when he was still doing those long-form solo piano improvisations. Usually a piece would be 30 to 40 minutes long, and he'd do a few of those. He'd either do a a full-disc or a double-disc album. And it wasn't until later that he started to transition into shorter-form improvisations. And this development as a creative spirit in music is testament to his ability to explore many avenues. And what's staggering about Keith Jarrett overall is just how many styles of music he can bring out, and he can master, and he can fully express with aliveness and jest. Probably my most favorite Keith Jarrett album of all time is Radiance. This is a solo piano album. I remember hearing it for the first time in my late teens. And as far as I'm concerned, this album marks the end of humans playing piano. It is the final frontier, never to be surpassed again. Once this album was out, everything that a human being can do at the piano has been done. And I doubt will ever see anyone who comes close to the range, the depth, the virtuosity, the beauty, the complexity, and the sheer magnificence that is from this album, Radiance. Just the title itself is striking. There seems to be something emanating from this music, something ethereal. I'd like to read a few words from the liner notes help us segue into our discussion about the philosophy behind Keith Jarrett. So he says in the liner notes of Radiance, How we arrive at profound thoughts has a lot to do with what we aren't thinking beforehand, and I had in mind letting some of the music happen to me without sitting there deep in thought. I wanted my hands, especially the left hand, to tell me things. This is part of the process I wished to experiment with. Transformative moments are very rare, or they seem so due to our inattention. It takes so many processes to coincide just so for us to arrive at a transformative moment if we're watching. But maybe this is wrong, and they happen constantly, though we are absent. So there's a lot in that. 
And it might seem a little esoteric at first, this idea of letting music happen to you. But if you're well aware of certain religious and non-dual philosophies, the idea of removing yourself from a situation in order to allow a flowering is not an uncommon philosophy. It's quite understandable if you know where the higher reaches of consciousness development lead to. And I think Radiance came about as a turning point in the Jarrett process. It was when he was really on the edge between one process and stepping into this new process and allowing the process to be part of the concert, as he said. And there's something very fresh about experimentation. And that's why I think this album, Radiance, is so alive. There are later albums where he took a similar sort of approach, and some of them are a bit hit and miss, if it is even possible for Jared to have an album which is a miss. So if you want to get into the more edgy, modern albums of Keith Jarrett, I recommend Radiance. One of the biggest influences on Keith Jarrett was George Gugiev, who was a mystic and a philosopher, a psychologist, who invented the fourth way, or came up with this philosophy called the fourth way. And Jarrett's talking here about lots of the elements of the fourth way, which have defined his process for understanding music and music process. I'd like to read a little bit from The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution, which is a book by Peter Ospensky. So Peter Ospensky was a student of George Gugiev's, and George Gugiev said that Peter Ospensky was the one student who got as close as they could to understanding the fourth way. So in this book, there are a lot of aspects lined out by Ospensky. And I'd like to share some of them to just show how many complexities there are to developing higher awareness and consciousness. So he's talking here about the idea of attention and how different it is and how many qualities there are to it. Quote, The fact is that consciousness has quite visible and observable degrees, certainly visible and observable in oneself. First, there is duration, how long one was conscious. Second, frequency of appearance, how often one became conscious. Third, the extent and penetration of what one was conscious, which can vary very much with the growth of man. End quote. And this is exactly what Jared is talking about in his liner notes to Radiance. He's saying that profound moments, transformative moments, may always be happening. It's just that we need to be paying more attention to them. Jared was very much was very much aware that consciousness and attention needs to be developed. I remember hearing an interview with Keith Jarrett where he kept talking about waking up. And people would ask him funny questions like, how much should, should we practice music? Or what music should we listen to? Or how should we go about becoming a musician? And these sorts of questions. And Jared always kept coming back to this one thing. And he would say something like, well, maybe you shouldn't be practicing music. There's something more important to be doing, which is waking up. 
And at the time, I didn't understand this. I didn't know what waking up meant. I didn't know what he was trying to say. And it was some years until it really clicked in my mind, which is that waking up is the growing of your attention and therefore the strengthening of your perceptions and therefore the expanding of your consciousness, coming into a deeper relationship with reality. Overall, we call that waking up. And it's so interesting that he says that that is more important than just the nuts and bolts of music. The fourth way, and the psychology of man's possible evolution, also talks about different centers. So there are instinctive centers, there are intellectual centers, there are also the five senses, there are also emotional centers, and there are also reflexes and moving functions. So these are just a few of the aspects of the fourth way, which talk about what's driving a person. Where do our ideas and our actions really come from? And how can we become aware of them and employ them in different ways? If you listen to Keith Jarrett's music, you can hear at times it is very emotional. And other times it's very technical, which would be the intellectual side. And yet somehow when you see him play, you can also see that he's very animalistic. He's very raw. He really gets into it. And I think the best explanation I can come up with is that he's using all of these centers at once. He's both being instinctive and intellectual. And being aware of these centers can help strengthen them. You can use them at different times. And also, he has a deep mastery of combining them and creating a flowing effect, which is an overall sound which comes through. There's another way to come at it which is the broad spheres of states of consciousness. So in our most broadest sense, there are four or five different types of states of consciousness. So there is gross, subtle, causal, and non-dual. So the gross realm, roughly speaking, is all about the nuts and the bolts It's the tangible stuff. It's the objects. It's the things that you can point to, the things that you can film, the things that you can photograph, or the music that you can record. Keith Jarrett has a very deep understanding of all that. He's got technical ability. He knows his scales. He knows his chords. He knows different genres. He can read all manner of classical music. He's played all manner of jazz music. And that's the gross realm. That's the tangible point to it, easy to see, easy to figure out world. And then there is the subtle world. And that's a bit more difficult to categorize. That would be more like the details. That would be your dynamic range. That would be the touch on the piano, which is so hard to put into words. It would be the sensitivity of the music, of the tone. It would be the flowing, improvisational nature of the music. It's the spontaneity of the music. It's the underlying structures or the phrasing and the 
overall attitudes that come through in the music. And that's a very subtle thing. That's harder to write down. And then there is the causal realm. So the causal world, roughly speaking, if we can throw all these in together, that's the attitude. That's the philosophy. That's the way of thinking. That's his contemplation on what music is. That's the thing that comes out in the liner notes more than the actual music. So you can't listen to someone's music and know exactly what their philosophy is. You need to cross-reference it with the words that they say. It's their psychology. And that only comes out in interviews and other writings that they might do talking about their process. So some psychologies are more complex than others. And there is a range of what sort of psychology will lead to what sort of music. This is all part of the causal realm. You can't really create your own psychology unless you're aware of this fact. You can't come into an understanding of mastering your psychology unless there's a part of you that can see the options and that can choose between different types of psychology. And that's the part of you which is very hard to put into words. You are not your thoughts. You are not the words bouncing around in your head. You are not the experiences that you've had. You are not the motivations that you've had. There's something that's navigating all those things. There's something that oversees the choosing and the picking and the controlling of those things. And that's what we call the causal self or the causal realm. And they are nested in the subtle realm. And the subtle realm is nested in the gross realm. So you can't have subtlety to a piece of music unless the piece of music is being played. And you can't have a psychology of a musician unless they are playing the music and they're being subtle about it and they've then gone on to develop themselves to understand psychology. So those are the first three realms, gross, subtle and causal. And the last realm is the non-dual realm. So non-duality is what Keith Jarrett is talking about when he's saying that the music happens to him and he's getting himself out of the way. So these are your ultimate peak experiences where the subject and the object disappears. There's no longer a person sitting at the piano playing the piano, forcing their ideas onto the piano, or using their psychology to control the piano. They've gone beyond that. They've realized that they have to leave psychology completely all behind. This is what he's saying when he talks about not sitting there deep in contemplation. He's not letting thoughts get in the way. And there's been a number of different interviews which I've heard Keith Jarrett talk about these mystical states. And to anyone who's not aware of mystical states or non-duality in general, he sounds very fluffy. He sounds off with the pixies. And in a sense, he is off with the pixies. And if you have seen him play, if you've seen footage of him play, you can very much say that there's something very abnormal going on here. There's some sort of high that is happening to this man when he plays music. And he always comes back to this thing of getting himself out of the way. And I think that philosophy is what makes Keith Jarrett 
so alive and so original and so creative, and it's an absolute joy to hear him play. So, how do we learn to become a little bit more like that? What's the path towards moving to those higher states? What do we need to do to experience a little bit of what Keith Jarrett experiences? And for that, I'd like to turn back to our book by Peter Ospensky, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. And he talks about different kinds of man. And of course, when he says man, he also means woman. So these different ideas, because they're so complicated, he's divided them into seven kinds of person. So I'll read this. This is from the second lecture. Quote, In order to avoid difficulty and to help the student in classifying new ideas, the system divides man into seven categories. The first three categories are practically on the same level. Man number one, a man in whom the moving or instinctive centers predominate over the intellectual and emotional, that is, physical man. Man number two, a man in whom the emotional center predominates over the intellectual, moving, and instinctive, emotional man. Man number three, a man in whom the intellectual center predominates over the emotional, moving, and instinctive, intellectual man. In ordinary life, we meet only these three categories of man. Each one of us and everyone we know is either one, two, or three. There are higher categories of man, but men are not born already belonging to these higher categories. End quote. So what he's basically saying is you can be an emotional person, you can be a physical person, or you can be an intellectual person. And he's very strong on pointing out that you only are developed naturally to these stages. In order to go beyond them, you have to become conscious of the distinctions and the differences and start to utilize these three in their own way. I'll read some more. Each of these are all born, number one, number two, and number three, and can reach higher categories only through schools. Man number four is not born as such. He is a product of school culture. He differs from man number one and two and three by his knowledge of himself, by his understanding of his position, and as it is expressed technically, by having acquired a permanent centre of gravity. This last means that the idea of acquiring unity, consciousness, permanent I, and will, that is, the idea of his development, has already become for him more important than his other interests. It must be added to the characteristics of man number four that his functions and centres are more balanced in a way in which they could not be balanced without work on himself, according to school principles and methods. I'll continue reading. Man number five is a man who has acquired unity and self-consciousness. He is different from ordinary man because in him, one of the higher centres already works, and he has many functions and powers that an ordinary man that is, man number one, two, and three, does not possess. Man number six is a man who has acquired objective consciousness. Another higher centre works in him. He possesses many more new faculties and powers beyond the understanding of an ordinary man. 
Man number seven is a man who has attained all that a man can attain. He has a permanent I and free will. He can control all the states of consciousness in himself, and he already cannot lose anything he has acquired. According to another description, he is immortal within the limits of the solar system. So, a few things there. When he's talking about schools, he doesn't mean our generic schools as in the education system. He means a specifically designed school for self-knowledge. It, it needs a specific kind of education, of learning. And one of the things that Peter Ospensky spent his career doing was creating such schools or institutions or communities where people could go to study self-knowledge and understand these different distinctions in consciousness. He's also talking about what it means to have a balance between different parts of yourself, the intellectual self, the emotional self, and how once these things have been balanced, the overarching self, or the thing that is the boss of all these things, can then further be developed. So all this takes part in the, well, it takes part in the causal realm. What Peter Ospensky is talking about is all philosophies, psychologies, and processes of the causal realm. So you're creating subtleties in your psychology, and it's built on gross actions. So gross then builds into subtle, and then subtle then builds into causal. And when we get all the way to the very top, and he's developed himself to this seventh man, that's when he has a non-dual experience. And that's what he's saying when he says he's immortal within the limits of the solar system. So it doesn't mean that he's immortal as in that he won't die. It means that he's tapped into something that is timeless. He's tapped into an event, a location, and an experience which is beyond just the person themselves. They become the whole experience. They become the whole room. And this ties into what Keith Jarrett sometimes talks about in his concerts when he says that someone in the front row can put him off. Someone in the back row who makes a noise or someone with a funny haircut or someone who doesn't feel quite right can put him off because he's very sensitive to the room. He's very sensitive to the whole situation that he is in when he is making music. So it is easy to see that Keith Jarrett is quite harsh with his demands for performance spaces. He has been known to be quite rude to audience members and quite harsh and quite demanding. But that's just because he is so sensitive to the environment and he is aware of how many factors are going on around that affect the music. So he talks about being quiet between songs, not coughing, not clapping at certain points, and also just being very respectful and not recording. He's very protective of his music recordings. And that's understandable because someone who is so sensitive to the performance space can be very put off by even minor things. And that ties into this idea of the non-dual approach to creating music, these non-dual states. So the fourth way is a very complicated philosophy. I've by no means touched all of the aspects of it. It's also a little bit elusive because it's so dynamic and complex. 
but you can tell that there's a very big crossover between the fourth way and Keith Jarrett's approach to music. I think if you can understand a little bit of that, you can appreciate the mysticism and the magic, the awe that is around Keith Jarrett. He really is something else, and I think there's going to be a lot more great music to come from him. It's lucky that he's alive in such an age when recording is so crisp and so clear. And there are many musicians in the past that I think may have been as technical as Keith Jarrett, but weren't as recorded as much, and that's a damn shame. But it's staggering to consider that just about every performance he does has been recorded by the record label ECM. And each time they bring out a new album by him, it seems to be a real good seller. It seems to still be making profit. And he's made such a mark on the world culture, the world stage, that that's totally understandable. And I think there's going to be a lot more Keith Jarrett albums to come, even after he has had his time. Because there's going to be a big backlog, and he's always going to be on demand, so I'm very much looking forward to many more Keith Jarrett albums to come. To think that someone could play that much music and record that many albums, and I could listen to them so many times and still be deeply moved by them. It goes beyond emotion. There's something truly existential about listening to Keith Jarrett especially in those deeper moments. He's not just beautiful, he's also dark. And it's clear he knows very intimately this feeling of depression and frustration. And yet he's also playful, he's also joyous. It's sometimes a celebration. And when it's a celebration, it feels like we're celebrating our humanity. There's just so much weight behind this music but it's hard not to sometimes just fall down and cry. And I've definitely been brought to tears many times by Keith Jarrett. Perhaps I'm just a tender soul. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, talking about Keith Jarrett. Go back and listen to him again. I'm sure you will after hearing this. Check, please, ECM for this promotion. Thanks very much for tuning in. That's all I have to say for now.